0: So just to high schoolers who are thinking you have to know exactly what you want to do when you graduate college, you know, you, you really don't. You can go in kind of open and let different things um, inform you and grow you.
1: Hello, labbies. In this episode of The Daily Chomp, I got the mm-hmm. chance to interview our beloved school principal, Ms. Brooke mm-hmm. Jackson. During our nearly hour-long chat, she had plenty of interesting stories to tell and people to talk about. Some of them are still working at lab today, like Miss Fabricant, or writers she met during college, like Sherman Alexie. By the time I was done recording this episode, I was amazed at how long we've been talking and surprised by how little time there was left during lunch. So little that, in fact, I only had two peanut butter sandwiches, egg and a banana, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this special episode featuring our one and only principal. So we're starting. Hello, Miss Brooke. Welcome to the show. Welcome to The Daily Chomp. How how are you feeling today?
0: Well, I'm very honored to be featured on The Daily Chomp. I think it's great that Lab School has its own podcast, so thanks for having me.
1: You're welcome. So how did you get the job of principal? Do you find it amazing how long you've been Lab's principal?
0: I find it amazing that I get to be the leader in a school that's as special as ours. Um, I really feel blessed to be able to lead in a school um, where students are so I don't know the students at lab it's hard to describe but you guys are smart in the traditional sense but you're also all really smart about how you take care of each other and the decisions you make um, for your school and for the world and then I get to work with these teachers who are again, just brilliant in their content area, but then just so dedicated to the overall wellness of the students. So I feel amazed and blessed every day that you know my job is to kind of hold the container for, for a school like ours. Um, your question about how I got to be principal, it's kind of a funny story. Um, so, I'm not sure if um, all the labbies know, but I started teaching English here in 1997. So um, that was a long time ago. Um, and that was an incredible experience. Um, at that time, some teachers um, who some of the older labbies may remember. Um, were here, and they were my mentors, you know, teachers like Heidi Slotkin, Nellie Valentin, Lisa Cacci, you know, they helped me really become um, a confident teacher, um, and I loved um, being a classroom teacher at Lab. Um, mostly taught 11th grade English. Um, which now um, the wonderful Rebecca Fabricant teaches. Um, but, you know, I taught here for a number of years and I really got involved in lots of different aspects of the school. I was always on the school leadership team, um, I co authored a peer leadership program. I was really into creating interdisciplinary possibilities and portfolio projects. And so I was interested in my classroom, but I was also very interested in the workings of the school. So, meanwhile, um, I'm taking classes at Teachers College, and um, I'm pursuing um, a second master's, and um, kind of getting ready to, you um, begin my doctoral studies. So, I, I started a, a PhD program um, in English education um, and I'm still in that program. I'm not finished yet, um, So, but I started that um, years ago in, in 2000 um, and now it's 2021 and I'm um, still what they call ABD, um, which means All But Dissertation. So, I never completed my dissertation. And one day I will. Um, But um, Michael, I was kind of in this really interesting place where I got to teach students. I got to study the teaching of English um, in higher education. And I was also teaching at Columbia, um, teaching teachers, right? Um, how to be better teachers. So it was like a really exciting triangle of teaching high schoolers, teaching master students, and being in a doctoral program. And then the founding leaders of the Lab School, um, Sheila Breslaw and Rob Menken, who started Lab School in 1987 as a middle school on the Upper East Side, they asked me if I would be interested in Becoming principal when they retired. So that's when I had my, when you said, Were you amazed? That's when I had my big shock, my big moment of, Oh my goodness, you know, what an incredible honor to be asked to lead the school that I love so much um, and that I helped to build. So I had a hard decision to make. You know, was I going to continue with my doctorate in English education? or was I going to get the credentials that I would need to be a principal? And I talked to a lot of my trusted mentors and I did some soul searching and I really decided that this was an opportunity that I I couldn't pass up. So um, I um, kind of spent the year preparing and learning and shadowing while Sheila and Rob were still here and then the following year um, with two brand new babies at home um, I, I started the principalship and that's um, going back about 16 years now
1: oh wow so that means you started at about 2005 yep yep so so were Sheila and Robert the first principals of, of lab school before they were you...
0: they were they were what they call founding principals
1: oh wow that's yeah. cool and speaking of doctorate degrees have yeah. you been asking Miss Fabricant um, about how uh, about how to pursue a doctorate degree since she does have a doctorate herself in English literature and in education yes
0: um, so you know Rebecca and I are very close um, friends as well as colleagues um, in part because um we went to the same graduate school English education at Teachers College at Columbia and we had a lot of the same professors and um, so we have that in common Um, and we have a lot of other things in common too but just more professionally um, we have a lot of similar um, I guess just authors that we refer to and um, professors and Um, leaders in the field, Um, so she and I are kind of always talking about, you know, did you read this book or did you read this research paper? Um, One thing that um, she's been really helpful with and I hope I've been helpful with her as well is just how do you balance kind of being a mom, being um, a scholar, right, being a teacher and being a leader? So, she's an amazing thought partner um, as we try to figure out that balance.
1: Oh, wow, that's incredible. Have you gotten to meet any famous authors in person like, I don't know, Tana nehisi Quares or Dr. Ibram X. Kendi or authors like those? Have I you gotten to meet famous authors in
0: have. person? Um, I have. Um, I guess two of the most memorable opportunities that I had to meet authors that I love. Um, one, um, I got to meet um, Sherman Alexie, who's a Native American writer. Um, he's written a number of books. Um, the one that, the ones that I taught while I was here, while I was a teacher at Lab, I always taught um, "Reservation Blues," and more recently, I taught um, a book called "Flight," which I think. Um, the ninth grade team still uses as um, one of the literary um, circle books. But Sherman Alexie is um, a gorgeous poet and writer. He really uses um, pathos to, well, pathos and humor to get at the difficulties of reservation life. Um, And I got to meet him. um, He was reading at Barnes and Noble um, and I made sure to go and get a front row seat and then I went up to him after, and I just started weeping because I was so overwhelmed, overcome being in the presence of this um, not only incredible thinker and writer, but just incredible spirit and soul. You know, it was very moving. Oh, wow,
1: that's cool. Though I don't remember uh, reading the Reservation Blues when I was a freshman myself with Miss Roseanne don't remember that in particular yeah any reasons why
0: you know i used to teach that book um in 11th grade and the book um flight i think is do you remember in ninth grade with ms rosen you would get to select a book and read it with a small group
1: um Um, i might have forgotten that but i do remember from that class we did try oedipus and oedipus rex mm. the, the greek mythology. that i remember we did get to a we did get to um try out um that play. and we would also have like a couple of quizzes when it came to grammar and prefix and suffixes. Yes. That's what I remember from my freshman my freshman English with I Mr. Rosen.
0: I think the Sherman Alexi book um was like a, a choice book. You know, like some students would read that and some students would read another. But you know, at lab we're always revising and mixing up our curriculum so some texts stay and go over the years. But I, I really do recommend um, Sherman Alexi. He um, he has struggles a lot with alcoholism and with mental health challenges.
1: Um, That's sad.
0: Is so sad. And I think he has a very honest way of both describing what these struggles are like, um, but not letting them define him.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of Robert Downey Jr. Since, mm. um, as you may or may not know, listeners, before he became Tony Stark or the Avenger we all know, he was once a drug addict him mm. himself and has went to jail a couple of times. And it wasn't until he went to rehab that he finally got better. Then it was just, I believe by chance that he got the role to become Tony Stark. And well, as they say, the rest is history. Yes. <laughs> yes. So as a principal, what is the hardest thing about the job?
0: Oh wow, Um, well there are many joys to being a principal and there are many challenges. I would say for me the biggest challenge, there are a couple. Um, One of the biggest challenges is feeling um, frustrated by some of the external constraints that the Department of Education provides. So sometimes I have a vision or a plan or you know, in collaborating with the teachers, there's something we really want to create for our students. Or in collaborating with students, there's something that you all really want for yourselves. And it, when it rubs up against what the Department of Education is willing to support, I find that very challenging. Um, The other piece is a little more personal, but I think, um, you know I talk a lot about social emotional learning and feelings and how much they matter. It's very emotional being a principal because I care so much and so in the course of a day I run through so many different emotions, you know. It could be frustration. It could be sadness. It could be exhaustion. It could be um, joy. Jo- well, joy. Yes. Thank you for naming that. It could be anxiety. It could be elation. It could be pride. So I feel like I'm on an emotional roller coaster, and so I really try to use all of my tools. You know, the ruler tools like the meta moment and mood meter, just to try to regulate my emotions and understand them and express them and not become overwhelmed by them. Um, But sometimes um, it can be overwhelming, all of the different um, emotions that you feel, especially when you care so deeply about something. And I, I really care very deeply about not just the success of lab, but the quality of the experience for the students.
1: Oh, wow, that's cool. Mm -hmm. So you majored in history, philosophy, language, and literature at Wesleyan University. Why did you choose these majors in college?
0: Yeah, so um, when I got to Wesleyan, um, I was actually um, a studio art major. Wow, Um, that's cool. Isn't that cool? because I always loved um, art making. And I still paint um, and do other kinds of multimedia work um, today, but more as um, kind of a hobby, you know? But I really loved that in high school. I did a lot of painting and photography, um, collage. And so I started off as a studio art major. And I took Drawing 101 and it was the the introductory drawing class that was a prerequisite for all of the other art classes. And it was so hard. And I think if I had had more of a growth mindset at the time, I might have stuck with it. But I kind of went through a reflection um, and realized that while I love um, art making and creating visual art, um, I find that language and writing um, is more of a strength area for me where I have more fluency and fluidity. I, I enjoy writing and I enjoy, um, I don't wanna say I enjoy speaking, but I enjoy working with language to bridge the gap between experience and expression. And um, so I thought a lot about a major that could be about those kinds of um, projects. And I learned about this, this kind of a small college within the university called the College of Letters. And in the College of Letters, you didn't have to choose um, between being an English major and studying literature or being a philosophy major You know, and studying um, philosophical texts. It was a much more interdisciplinary humanities major where you looked at the intersections of history, philosophy, language, and literature. And I thought that was so exciting And um, one thing I really liked about the College of Letters, which I ended up pursuing as my major, um, you had the opportunity to go abroad and study in another country um, your sophomore year. Where did you go? Um, I went to Paris, France. And I had the most incredible experience. um, And I really learned the language and I had studied French all through high school and I knew only a little bit because it's challenging to learn a foreign language just from books. I know here our Spanish department does a beautiful job. It was much more traditional in my high school and I never really mastered the language but living um, with a French family and going to school in Paris I really um, gained, um, I wouldn't say fluency, but I was conversant and I could write, and so when I came back to Wesley in junior year, I got to study um, in the vernacular. I got to read philosophical texts and I got to study art um, in French. So that was very exciting just to kind of stretch my brain. and a lot of the texts that I ended up using for my senior thesis at Wesleyan um, were French feminist philosophers, and I got to read their books in the language in which they were originally written. So that was a scholarly challenge and something I'm proud of.
1: Oh, wow. So since you're learning French, have you ever thought about using Duolingo since I'm actually using Duolingo to learn Spanish? and German.
0: You're learning German on your own.
1: Uh, yeah, I chose that language because um, English and German are in the same language family called proto germanic so that's why um, I, 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 cho- I chose that language. Good
0: for you. Um, yeah, Duolingo seems to be a very good tool. Um, they didn't have it when I was growing up, but I know um, it helps a lot of, um, not just high school students, but just... Um, self-sponsored learners who want to take on a language, um, you know, develop that skill. I think it's amazing. Like me? Like you. Ah. Yeah.
1: Hello. i bin Michael which is German for, hello, I'm Michael Amaho. I'm
0: impressed.
1: Thank you. Mm-hmm. So do you agree with the saying that those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it again? What do you think about that phrase?
0: Mm, so interesting. You know, um, before... Um, Mr. Koch and um, before Ms. Lynch there was an assistant principal here named um, Mark Berkowitz who um, you might have heard about but he was an assistant principal here with me for about five years and he was a history teacher and um, he taught me that you know history is now. History is now. So instead of kind of thinking about you know we have the past which we need to learn about and remember so we don't repeat it. Um, He really taught me to kind of think about the relationships between like, where have we been? Where do we find ourselves? And where are we headed, you know? And I've chosen to learn about the past so that I can be more informed and um, use more criticality to think about how I wanna help the direction of the future. And I think about that both personally, how do I want to live, how do I want to show up in the world, you know? I think about it professionally, like what is the direction of lab school and why? And how can we make a mark in the world for good? And I think about it globally, you know? Like where are we headed? And how can we use all of our skills, including our habits of lab learners, to take care of ourselves, take care of each other, take care of those more vulnerable than we are, so many people in so much pain, um, and take care of our planet, do you know? True, we only
1: have one planet after That's all. That's it,
0: there's no plan B, right?
1: Mm-hmm, there, there isn't. So so in August, there was a series called What If Released on Disney Plus, and it and the essential premise of the series is that it explores what happens if may, if events in the Marvel film franchise change. Like for example, Captain Carter instead of Captain America. Mm. What if the Avengers never formed? So I asked this question to you. If you could change any moment in American history, what would it be? Like what if what? Mm-hmm
0: think about this for a second. Wow. I love the premise of that question because so much hinges on every event.
1: You can change any moment you want, the yeah. Revolutionary War, the Civil War, now uh, like ask mr duffy this question and he said he his what if would be what if the americans never started the american revolution in the Mm. first place mr brown said um what was what was his um what if his what if would be what if the what if the federal troops didn't leave so early during the reconstruction era Mm. because uh, because after the federal troops left that was when the jim crow era began And it wouldn't be up until the 60s or MLK's time that it would end.
0: Absolutely. Those are just some examples. Yeah, my gosh, my colleagues are so smart and reflective. Um, A a number of things came to mind right away. I thought of the wars, certainly. I thought of, like, maybe smaller turning points. You know, I thought, what what if Ronald Reagan wasn't president during the AIDS pandemic? And, um... You know, we had leadership that actually recognized um, that this was a, um, a health crisis that needed to be treated with urgency and compassion. Um, I thought about even the moment um, when um, our country was, was colonized originally, just thinking about um, Indigenous Peoples Day, you know, and if we could go kind of all the way back and, you know, imagine what the course of history would have been like um were indigenous people not initially um displaced. Um it's a great question and one that I'm gonna continue to think about.
1: Okay, thank you. That
0: idea of crossroads, right? Mm-hmm. Where things could go differently.
1: Would you also be happy if, like, let's say 9-11 never happened? Because for me, those are my personal, mm. personal what-ifs. Like, mm. what if 9-11 never happened? Or what if uh, during the pandemic, the COVID leadership was was better? Because if it was better, then we still wouldn't be wearing a mask now. Like, it would probably be a normal school year by yes,
0: now. Yes, 100%. You know, I, I thought of 9-11 in terms of... Um, what if the United States never occupied um, Iraq and Afghanistan, you know? A move didn't enter into this 20-year um, war, war that, that generated so much loss of life. Um, and when I think about my current students, your entire lives, you know, we've been um, enmeshed in um, that horrific war.
1: Oh, wow. That sure is a very interesting question to think about. Isn't that? It's a great question, Michael. I know. Thank you. So what made you decide to major in education at Columbia and become a teacher?
0: That's a great question, too. So I did not take a single education class at Wesleyan. So just high schoolers who were thinking you have to know exactly what you want to do when you graduate college. You know, you, you really don't. You can go in kind of open and let different things um, inform you and grow you. So I didn't take any education classes. And when I graduated Westland, I was applying to PhD programs in English literature. So I was going to study to become a college professor. And I met, um, a man at a, at a party, actually, and I, I we were talking about what we do and, I, you know, I was a teacher and he said, oh, I'm the chair at Teachers College in the English Education Department. And I said, what's English education? And when I think about that now, it sounds so ignorant um, because I ended up building a whole career out of it. Um, But he said, you "You don't want to do English Lit, you want to do English Ed. So he invited me um, to one of his classes that he taught at Teachers College. And I went to his class and it was at his apartment um, in um, Morningside, um, near Morningside Park. And he had his whole class there. It was a teaching of writing class. So he was teaching Becoming teachers how to teach writing to high school kids. And everyone was, was sharing their research and their reading and have like um, breaking bread, you know, having a meal together, and they were so passionate. Um, and I really said to myself, this is what I want to do. I want to learn how to be an amazing English teacher. And so I said to this um This gentleman who became a friend um, later, I said to him, how how do I apply? And he said, you can start next week. And so I had a very unconventional interview um, to begin um, the master's program to become become a teacher. Um, But in terms of what made me kind of see myself going along that path, You know, my grandmother um, was a teacher. She taught English and drama. And my mother was um, an art teacher. Um, So these kind of strong, um, not only strong women in my life, but kind of people I looked to as my um, models um, were always teachers. And I would love to go visit their classes and be with the teenagers. I thought the teenagers were so incredible. I would go around with my autograph book and ask them to sign my autograph book because I thought they were all famous. They all seemed like stars to me. I remember going to the place that my grandma would produce kind of like Miss Teresa does with LTC, or going to my mom's high school art classes. um, And she would teach everything from ceramics to metal shop Um, It's a painting and, you know, she's really my soulmate and um, person who's inspired me. So I think that seed of becoming a teacher has just been in me since I'm a little girl.
1: Oh, wow. That is so (laughs) cool. I never even uh, knew about that story at all. Thank you so much for sharing it.
0: thanks for asking.
1: So, as a principal who is advocating for racial and school equality and a critical examination of American history, yes, have you ever faced pushback for your efforts and how do you stand up to it? Wow,
0: you're asking the tough questions, Michael. I mean, I'm very committed um, to racial equity um, at the lab school and beyond. Um, you know, in my work as school leader, focusing on racial equity at lab. Um, has been challenging and at times uphill with some resistance, but I have found a tremendous amount of support for the efforts, especially from the student body. I think students are very um, insightful and kind of evolved in their thinking that um, a public school should reflect the population of the city and that all of the members of a school community should share power and agency and voice and resources in a way that reflects equity. So I feel a lot of allyship um, from the students here um, and from a number of teachers here who are not only extremely passionate about the cause but are very um, well-informed and well-educated and I actually have benefited tremendously from being in conversation with um, a number of my colleagues here who have really pushed me to follow different thinkers on social media, to read different texts, to reflect on different prompts, just to grow my own racial consciousness as a white woman. And you know to continue to ask myself, how does my whiteness show up at lab? Um, I who. To use my position of privilege and of positional power um, to elevate and amplify um, the voices of students of color. And, um, you know, yesterday we had our first equity team meeting of the year, and it was so well attended, and it just made me feel very optimistic um, about the direction. I know that change is hard and I know that very few people give up privilege willingly
1: Without a fight
0: Without a fight
1: I mean if you want change you have to fight for it Those in power will not give it up without a fight as history has shown many times even now
0: 100% 100% So you know I'm not surprised by some of the resistance and the friction you expect that you know given like you said history and the way power works um but i think if we um share in the work and stay um committed to the direction um we will we will make change
1: okay so which teachers would you say um are your biggest allies or who have, or were the ones that push you the most would it be teachers like mr brown or Mr. Masto or which teachers would you say?
0: Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, you know, um, you always learn different things from different people. Um, it's been very meaningful for me to have a long-standing and very trusting relationship with um, Christina White, who was an assistant principal here. Um, she's a black woman. Um, She's one of my closest friends, and that's one of the few relationships in which um, I feel that I've been really called out and called in when I have microaggressed or when I have um, acted in ways that reflect the racism that is in me. And I think that's because um, there's a lot of love and trust there. So Um, I think she's probably the person who has pushed me and shaped me the most, um, in terms of accepting that I can still be a good person and understand that, um, because I'm a white person who lives in a racist society, I am also racist by definition, and, um, You know, Christina is very helpful at kind of helping me see um, what it looks like to chart an anti-racist path as an individual and as a school leader, so I think she's kind of my number one. And then it's been really great to, um, you know, at once have people like Mr. Duffy and Ms. Grunman, who I've known for many years. Um, and we've been in this conversation for a very long time, so they've kind of watched the evolution of this equity work over the years, so I'm very grateful to them. Um, But then welcoming some newer people into lab more recently, people like Mr. Brown, Mr. Duru, um,
1: Misuku, Ms. Just, just is, to make a rhyme. <laughs> yeah, there is. <laughs> is yeah, <it's
0: laughs> Duroo and, and And O'Keefe, you know. Um, yeah, who, I know. She's very, um, how do I say, persistent in keeping the spotlight on this work. Um, and I, I really welcome some of these newer voices. Um, special shout out um, to Mr. Duroo because he's. Um, picked up the role of um, faculty advisor for the equity team meeting. And we had such a great kickoff I mentioned, but he challenged us to think about if we really become a truly racially equitable school, what would it look like? What would it feel like? What would it sound like? And I loved that prompt because it really made you think about tangible evidence, right? And, you know, your question of like, which teachers have helped the most, um, you know, I named a couple people who have just personally um, inspired and challenged me, but there were so many voices in that room, do you know? It was great um, to hear um, from students representing all different clubs and teachers representing all different backgrounds, you know, contributing to the dialogue.
1: Oh, wow. So would you also say Miss Araya would also be one of the people who who pushed you to become a better person and a better human being?
0: 100%. You know, um, Sharmila, Araya, um, and I also, I mean, these relationships, Michael, are really um, what have shaped me the most, of anything. we were teachers together here before I was a school administrator and so we've been having this ongoing conversation for decades about kind of who is a lab school student and she was really the one who partnered with me um, the most on the particular problem of the District 2 priority Um, that always bothered us both um, to the point where we found it Unacceptable and and racist, um, and so I feel like she gave me the courage to really express how I felt about that um, that screen and that priority, and to go public with it. And I'll always um, feel grateful to her for that.
1: Okay, so as a principal and school administrator, how do you feel about? About the about the district program being removed now, since it was only a few days ago that, um, that Mayor Bill De Blasio in his final three months in office is going to remove the, the racial, uh, the the gifted program, which has unfortunately fed racial segregation in this mega diversity. So, what do you think about it? About that piece of news as a school administrator, do you feel like it came too late? He could have done it earlier. So what are your thoughts?
0: Um, The G&T piece or the District 2 piece? Uh,
1: Maybe the District 2 piece like um, Bill Deplazio did and the the, the gifted program. But Mm -hmm. also, I think Lab um, also abolished the District 2 priority um, in 2019, I think, with the help of students like Chris. And then Mm -hmm. um, Mayor Mayor Bill Deplazio just made it official, Mm -hmm. I believe. Exactly.
0: Well, I feel w- wonderful about um, the abolition of the D2 priority. I feel like you cannot equate zip codes with um, student, um, with student's futures, do you know? Um, so I'm very proud and pleased to be able to welcome students from all over. Um, New York, all five boroughs, and I really believe that um, we have such a beautiful school. um, It should be open to um, any student who wants to be a part of um, a school that's mission-driven in the particular way that lab is, you know? Kids who want a school that's collaborative and not competitive, you know? Kids who want a school um, where we do the deep learning rather than the test prep, you know? Why do you have to live in a certain um, gerrymandered district um, to get to attend a school like that. Um, I also think about how we have such a shining special education inclusion program, um, and that should be open to um, students all over the city who would benefit um, you know, from being in um, an environment like this where students with IEPs don't have to feel ashamed, they can feel proud of their learning differences, you know? So I feel really good about that. The the gifted and talented, um, you know, I feel less less closely tied to that decision. Um, But I will say, in my experience as a parent, when I, so when my children were young and they took the gifted and talented test, they did not qualify for the citywide programs like Hunter and Anderson and Nest M. They qualified for local GT programs, so within the district where we lived. So my husband and I toured them, and they were gifted and talented classes within a school. And what we saw was The gifted and talented classrooms were by and large the white students, and the other classrooms were the students of color. And we also observed instruction, and there was nothing particularly special or targeted or tailored about the gifted and talented classes. So it really was um, a sorting of students Um, that didn't serve any function except um, to separate, right? Um, And that perhaps there are parents who don't want their kids mixing along those lines. We felt very strongly that this is highly problematic. Um, Interestingly, um, the elementary school where we ended up sending our daughter what they did I thought was quite brilliant they took the students who qualified for gifted and talented and instead of separating them they put them into a dual language program um, that was heterogeneous so do you know what
1: languages were those it
0: was Spanish and English so while my daughter had um, scored as eligible for Gifted and Talented and what she ended up getting was a very challenging experience of taking all her subjects, math even, in Spanish. And so wow, it challenged… Wow! Right? Increíble! Yeah!
1: So, I never even knew that. Isn't wow.
0: that amazing? It was really, yeah, it really stretched her and challenged her and, you know, she struggled, but in a real brain-building way. I thought that that, that's such a great approach to like challenging children appropriately rather than sorting them. Do you know? Okay. Um, I do feel that giftedness, which needs a new moniker, right? Because every child is gifted. Um, But, you know, students who um, show a particular aptitude um, for academics... um, can be understood as a special need, right? So the same way we think about special education, that students maybe need to learn and be taught and be assessed differently. I'm very open to that idea, that maybe there's a group of children that have a certain kind of special need that we've been calling gifted, but really it's just different, you know, because Some kids get really bored in school or get really angry in school because, you know, maybe the pace is slow or maybe there's not enough independent learning or, you know, I'm not an expert in gifted education, but that would be my recommendation if anyone invited me to the table to talk about it, is try to perceive um, giftedness um, as a special need that deserves a particular brand of um, instruction.
1: Wow, I really do agree with you on that one. And for those of you listeners who may not know, zip in the zip in zip codes means zonal interpostal codes yes. and it's and at the end of the day all uh, the main purpose that those codes serve is just to let mailmen know like uh, where uh, where where they should deliver their mail besides the address because as I said, it's like it's like just a code like for this like for new york it's 07002 please excuse this interruption as manhattan's zip code is one hundred one one. thank you and back with the show so if i'm a mailman and if i say 07002 on like a package or letter then i know i it should be in new york i don't need to be given the address it's like something to make to make the sorting um easier but I don't really think it should be applied applied to schooling because it's just really unfair, and that was something I just really felt from the beginning.
0: Yeah, we can sort the mail, but we don't need to sort the children, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So the final question for this interview is, can you tell me an anecdote about what Kimmel was like as a high school student? He talked about in my government class, he once read aloud in front of him since he couldn't read silently for a sustained period of time. Can you tell me why you did that? Because reading aloud in front of a group, or more specifically a person, is usually associated with preschool mm-hmm. and toddlers.
0: I'm smiling because I love Jesse Kimmel. I love him as an adult man. But I loved him as a high school kid. Um, and he did struggle to sustain focus reading a challenging text. We were reading Catch-22 by Joseph Heller and I could tell he wasn't keeping up with the reading and I said why don't we get together after school and we actually had a couch in my classroom at the time and we got kinda comfy on the couch and we did a little read aloud and actually A couple of Jesse's friends joined us, because they were kind of like, oh, I got to do the reading anyway. I might as well come. Um, Jesse always had a lot of friends. Um, And it was so much fun, because I got to kind of read, emphasizing different points that I wanted the students to get. And I even used kind of voices for the different characters. And we could kind of stop and discuss a little bit as we went. I believe that we never outgrow the beauty of a read aloud being read to. Um, Even though that's
1: usually associated with kids, bedtime, and, and little toddlers.
0: Yeah, I mean just, I don't know if um, any of you listeners who are young adults or um, older adults, but you know, if you've been read to recently, You know, what does it feel like? Um, I find it very beautiful um, and um, a very positive experience, so, you know, at that time, not only did it help Jesse Kimmel and other learners um, understand the text, but I think it also allowed us to share um, an experience that had very positive emotions attached to it, you know?
1: Oh uh-huh, wow, that's cool. Yeah. So uh, as a as a teacher or a former teacher, so if you don't believe, we we ever outgrow the need to read aloud, even though uh, we're not we're not kids anymore.
0: Yeah, I believe that.
1: Do you think we should get rid of the notion that reading aloud is only for for kids and toddlers?
0: I sure do. I think there's a lot of things like that, like you never outgrow crayons you never outgrow a read aloud you never outgrow um, you know someone like I don't know just making you like a special card or you know just when you're a kid and you get a birthday card or something like that's still a really nice thing when you're an adult um I don't know I, I like the idea of bringing play that we might associate with childhood into our young adults and adult lives
1: oh wow that's cool well that's it folks that's the end of this interview and the end of this episode hope you hope you enjoyed it and there's something new thank you for listening to this episode of the daily Trump. tune in next week for episode four